Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Indeed, and joining us today, Matt Dickinson and Bill Edgar. Coming up, we're going to look back at a fascinating weekend of Premier League action. Marvellous Manchester City are back to being great as they hit eight. However, Liverpool didn't lie down and they capped the gap between themselves and City at five points with a hard-fought 2-1 win at Stamford Bridge. But let's start at the London Stadium, though, where Manuel Pellegrini hammered home the challenge that Manchester United faced to keep their place in the top six this season. How concerning, Matt, is the state United are in right now? Uh, well, as, as a fan, pretty concerning. Um, sorry, I'm not a fan. Uh, <laughs> that very clear. <laughs> yeah, no, for, for their fans, um, yeah, pretty concerning because it just feels like you know, a small step up and then a pretty big one back all the time. And I think we are just stuck in this is going to be the the cycle of United season. They're gonna they're not good enough, to be frank, to to you know be sure uh, against you know even sort of middling teams in um, in the Premier League. They're set, yeah they're going to be struggling to get top four. You know, and there yeah there's been okay. Wambasaka comes in, Maguire come in, and. Pretty, pretty decent signings, but up front, the minute Rashford goes off, you wonder what on earth they're going to have. And um, there are issues all over, the, you know, the pitch. And still, I think around the hierarchy, um, and the biggest question—well, not the biggest question, but obviously a big question. Solskjaer's not necessarily the problem, but is he the solution? And I've had my doubts about that since the start. Well, there were goals from Andre Yamalenko and Aaron Cresswell that sealed the win for West Ham, who now are unbeaten since their opening day loss to Manchester City. Bill, obviously, you've made no secret of the fact that you're a United fan. Um, James yeah. Gearbrandt has written about the game today in the game, saying there's barely any plan, threat, or identity. That's worrying as a fan. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head, actually, about uh, identity. Um, in terms of the actual players, um, United have got a reasonably talented group of players when they're all fit. Um, but uh, but you're looking at what can the manager do in terms of increasing uh, the, the level so that the team's greater than the sum of its parts, uh, which Klopp and uh, Guardiola do uh, to an extraordinary degree. So so you're. you're you're looking for an exceptional manager to to get anywhere close to that, and so far after nine months, there's not really much sign that Solskjaer's done that at United. You can't really see a pattern. I know Guardiola and Klopp each took a year or so, or so to really get into their stride, but even in the first year, you could see what their plan was. You could see, oh, okay, if they, you know, uh, sorry, intense pressing game or passing apparently suicidally around the back or whatever, that sort of thing. Yeah, it didn't particularly work at start. Some sort of plan was... But with United, you can't really see w- what they're doing. Um, I mean, he's changed it uh, compared with Mourinho in terms of slightly more attacking. So there's a few... They have more options up front. Um, um, the, the creativity is a real issue. There's just there's there's very little plan. They kind of don't know what to do. It's not like they're they're deliberately passing back as they did under Mourinho because they're very cautious. But there's, there's just little idea. Um, and, and at the moment, with uh, Pogba out, he's a very creative player and an incredibly talented player, albeit hasn't shown that much with United. But they're they're, they're playing McTominay and Matic together in central midfield. They're, they're similar sort of players, both massive, both very solid, and but you don't really 
you want two of them in the same team. Um, but there's not much else to, to go on. Andreas Pereira has been playing. I mean, he, he's a long way from the standard United should be um, looking for. Mata has been a great player in his day, but he's slightly off it. Um, Rashford, I mean, he's got great potential, but now he's injured. Um, Martial, again, is a fantastic player, but again, he's injured. You know, what certainly when when Sanchez uh, was there, again, a brilliantly talented player, didn't do anything at United. But you know, when he was there, they had the the tools. You know, the the, the raw materials were there. Then you put a great manager on top of that. <clears throat> then you had. Um, Potential to come into be a great team, but um, just looking at Solskjaer on his own, I can't really see much of a, a plan there. Well, it was a second defeat in a row for Manchester United at the London Stadium. Mentioned already that Marcus Rashford picked up that injury, he limped off, leaving Ole Gunnar Solskjaer Gregor with no strikers. How naive were United in letting Lukaku go and then not actually bringing anybody else in? Yeah, I mean, it looks like a pretty foolish move now. Um, I thought Josie Mourinho was quite interesting about this. He's, he's actually turning out to be a pretty entertaining pundit, I think. <laughs> um, he was talking about how he's not politically correct and uh, he was always crying about the lack of centre-halves last year, but that had, well, that had a purpose, you know? He, he wanted to go out and sign someone. So he's essentially saying that either Solskjaer is happy that Rashford is the number nine to rely upon or he's not playing the game properly really and he should have been putting more pressure on people above to to bring in someone else um, but yeah I mean Tony Cascarino's piece sort of highlighted it today that there's I think the last time a, a Man United forward scored 20 goals was Van Persie in 2012-13 uh, and as Bill's just gone through the sort of options now Rashford he's only hit double figures once Martial Scored 11 in his first season. That's the most he's ever scored since he joined Manchester United. Um, they don't have many options. And so Sanchez, you can see why they allowed him to leave because it was just a disaster from start to finish, really. And he wanted to go. Lukaku might have wanted to go, but I think without having someone lined up, it's, it's it looks like it's been a, a big error. Well, you mentioned Jose Mourinho. He also spoke about Rashford and how he, when he was the boss, he preferred to play him wide rather than down the middle. And he doubts whether or not the England striker can ever make a success of, of his new position. Is he right? Should United be relying on Rashford, Matt, to be getting the goals? Well, they haven't got much choice. But um, <laughs> I think it's interesting. Gareth Southgate was talking about this um, with us recently, saying that he envisaged Rashford becoming a a sort of orthodox goal scoring number nine sort of sooner than he appears to be. Um he's he said that he can see him playing um wider for, for sort of for longer because partly because he seems more comfortable there. I think, you know, there is you know, I in an ideal world I think at his stage um he would be doing that role as a sort of the, the regular while using the number coming into the number nine role to to sort of learn and develop it, but yeah, you know, it's too much. For, I think it is too much at his stage of a career to be United to be saying, you know, we not only need you, but we need you to be number nine. We need you to be scoring this twenty twenty five goals a season that we're we're lacking. It's a big expectation on someone who's still exploring their potential. Um, uh, you know, the way he's being used with England makes far more sense. So it's um, yeah, it's 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 a big burden on on him, and um, it highlights one of many issues for United. Mm. 
not that we want to be the Jose Mourinho mouthpiece, of course, but he also spoke uh, about how this team is worse than the team of last season. Do you agree with that, Bill? It's hard to compare with last season because there are two such different periods. You know, the collapse under Mourinho, then the kind of moderate recovery overall under Solskjaer. And if you go back to Mourinho's first season, then it's pretty similar, really, similar level. Um, but as I say, there's just a, there's a long way to go. They, they definitely need, um, they've always need greater strength in depth and Manchester City have always been far ahead of them in that sense. Um, but now that they need uh, one or two players just for the for the first 11, just to strengthen that, that level even. Um, and, you know, the, the, the time will come when people, the question about Solskjaer will be asked. I mean, you know, to Matt's credit, I remember when uh, Manchester United were beating everybody inside, beating PSG away, Arsenal away, Chelsea away, Tottenham away, beating everybody away and um, and do quite well. I mean, there was quite a string of lucky results in amongst that good start. But Matt was saying, you know, hang on, everybody was clamouring for Solskjaer to be manager. <laughs> he did say, well, isn't Pochettino sort of better qualified, you know, given if you look over the last six, seven years or whatever. And at the moment, then it's, it's hard to disagree. I mean, they've lost the fear factor, haven't they? No one's afraid to take on Manchester United anymore, Matt. Well, that's definitely w- w- one of the issues. I mean, to be fair to Solskjaer, he's you know that that was a sort of in- part of his sort of dubious inheritance. And you know, he, I, I think he's a he's got potential, but he doesn't know his own potential at this level yet. And that's that's the scary position for United. Well, that's why I think they needed someone who's coming in with a, a, a you know dangerous in football to talk about long-term plans that's sort of you know six months in this game but you know what I mean that's why I always thought Pochettino made so much sense um, because I think a club at that point needed someone who was going to set had a very clear vision of the type of football they want very clear idea of the type of players they want had had the experience of doing that of club building of team building and they could you know know their caliber to put the faith in, and the trouble with Solskjaer, they don't know his caliber. You know that we're all trying to find out and exploring it. And to say he's he's a you know bright guy, but that's very different from dragging a club that's had the sort of still really stuck in post Ferguson convulsions. You know that takes a strong man and a strong leader to drag that to a different place. Mm. Um, and that's where say that's that's why there's you know there have to be. You know, Solskjaer may have abilities, but there have to be questions about him until he proves if he can do that, and it's a big, it's a big ask. None of that will change, though, unless there's a change in the, the hierarchy or a change of sort of approach. Certainly, they're the man who they're the guys who will appoint the next manager and, and and are involved in the next signings. You know, that's why it's a double, it's a double whammy really for United. They have, as as we've been saying, Solskjaer, who's really unproven and he's been handed a bit of a raw deal. Uh, with the with the squad, which has happened over a series of years since Ferguson left, I think they said yesterday on TV at a cost of nine hundred million pounds. This is the squad they have. It's astonishing. You know, look at the bench yesterday. They brought on Fred and Lingard, and other otherwise there was Romero, Rojo, Twanzabi, and Chong. Like that's Manchester United's bench after spending nine hundred million pounds. It's astonishing, mm. and it's not Solskjaer's fault. It's 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 a kind of you have to look at this holistically, really. It's, it's, nothing will change unless there's a change of approach at the top. I know you mentioned there about Maurizio Pochettino perhaps being a better suited to the job at Old Trafford. And of course, I'm not suggesting that is going to happen. But 
would it be the right move for Manchester United now to bring in someone like Pochettino? But then would it also be the wrong move for Pochettino to now go to? Well, I don't, you know, I think it'd be interesting. I mean, I don't think he's, um, I mean, he's on under contract to Spurs for, for for some time. But I'd, I'd be, you know, there's definitely a challenge there to keep dragging, drag, you know, reach the Champions League final, keep getting the Champions League, but you know, still a way off winning the title, um, domestic title, and it's very hard to see how they bridge bridge that gap anytime soon. So. You know, it'd be quite natural for him to be looking at next options. And I mean, I know that United didn't even try and sound him out. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was not. And Spurs fans, as they told me many times on the uh, comments on some of my articles, <laughs> stop trying to get rid of our manager. And yeah, fair, <laughs> yeah if I were them, I, I'd be saying the same. Fair enough. So this is, you know, this is all hypotheticals. But, you know, United didn't try and get him. Um, I just think, say, when I was looking around, he just ticked. For the type of fit that United should want, then then he ticked more boxes than 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 anyone I could see. But as Gregor quite rightly says, you know he might have his own reservations as well. I mean, look at this, you know, t- the technical director issue. At United, you know, they, they may bring in someone after talking about it for months, but I don't think that person's going to have proper clout. I don't think they're going to be put in charge of the football department. There there are other issues that have nothing to do with Solskjaer that are going to endure. So there are major problems for Manchester United, but let's talk about West Ham then, because it, they were the victorious side this weekend. Um, they were fourth bottom this time last year, Bill. Now they're level on points with third-placed Leicester. Is the future looking bright for them then? I think it's looking brighter than for, for some time. Um, they've got a good, solid base now. Fabianski is a really good keeper. Declan Rice is a fantastic uh, defensive midfielder, so he... You know he he'll play every week. Fabianski will play every week. They know exactly what's you know they're very reliable. The back four is it's becoming you know quite familiar with each other. Yeah, that looks very solid. So that gives a good um, base for for the the front players. Um, and they've got a a really good selection of um, very talented, creative, skillful front players. And they're. Um, uh, last, they've done really well this season. They've linked very well, given that they've hardly played together. I mean, Sebastian Allaire is new, and Yarmolenko is in- injured for almost this, his entire first season. Um, the fact that they're linking so well uh, with Felipe Anderson, who had a really good season last time, um, you know, it augurs well. I think. Um, you know, if uh, if Manchester United or Arsenal are slightly off the pace, then uh, you know they and Leicester uh, are kind of re- reasonably well placed to pounce. How good is the forward option then, or options for West Ham right now? Obviously, Manchester City, Liverpool. We know about the strengths of their sides, Gregor. But when you look at West Ham's, do they come just below them, for example? Maybe at their best. I think. Bill's, as Bill sort of pointed out there, Yarmolenko's coming back from a long-term injury. Allaire's made a good start, but it's a start. Uh, Anderson's always been sort of blowing hot and cold, and at his best, he's a he's a, ph- a phenomenal talent. Um, uh, Fornals again is a, a real talent, but it's, a, it's first season in the Premier League, so um, they are a talented, talented team, and. Just always something hovering in the back of your mind that this is West Ham and they have purple patches and then and then they fall away. But they do look more solid and organised and well sort of well coached and drilled in this season so far than they have in quite some time, I think. And 
uh, I think Pellegrini deserves a lot of credit for that, really. If it all clicks like Manuel Pellegrini wants it to, Matt, do you think you could see West Ham challenging for a top six place? Yeah, top top six. I mean, I know there was. I heard some chats yesterday about top four. I think that might be uh, getting a bit carried away. But yeah, uh, top six is is possible. But say because you know the vulnerabilities of a club like United, um, and I think Everton are clearly having their own. You know, they've would have a, those sort of aspirations, ambitions, but they're struggling. Wolves, everyone thought was going to be a team that was very upwardly mobile. You know, look at where they are. So suddenly. Yeah, I think I think um, that sort of fourth, fifth, sixth sort of you know is is there's a lot, a lot of volatility around it. So you know they 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 do need to um, to show a, a consistency, I guess, that we haven't associated with West Ham for some time, but it's possible. Liverpool remain top of the Premier League after a two-one win at Chelsea, and they stay five points clear of Manchester City. It perhaps wasn't the most polished of performances from Liverpool, Bill, but it was certainly gritty. They certainly knew how to to get grind out a result against a, a Chelsea side that were fighting towards the end. Yeah, they'd had a difficult Champions League match in midweek uh, away to Napoli, um, so they were playing on top of that, and uh, and they're up against a really good Chelsea team, certainly in the second half. Um, Chelsea really overran them in the last half hour um, so uh, it, it was really a, a very rare occasion I thought when Liverpool didn't actually deserve to win a league game the fact that they did get the three points is well <laughs> I mean there won't be many games where, when they don't deserve to win so that just <laughs> looks all the more like they're going to end up with a very high total again um, yeah maybe they were in the the in the last half hour, they were perhaps feeling the effect of that that uh, Champions League game, um, but uh, but they 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 took the uh, goals well, and they a couple of times could easily have added to the total. So so yeah, another you know fairly strong performance. Mm. And they've now won the last fifteen Premier League games, Gregor. It's a record only beaten by Manchester City in twenty seventeen. Sheffield United, Leicester, and Manchester United stand in the way of them equaling that record. So can they do it? With those three to come, you certainly wouldn't bet against it to be <laughs> honest. And the, the kind of I see the form they're in, but again, I still don't really think they've hit the absolute heights that they're capable of. I mean, as Bill said, they they sort of rode the luck a little bit. Chelsea created chances in the second half, and uh, I think they probably did look a little bit leggy. Um, got a lot of joy down that left flank. Uh, Alexander Arnold's kind of he's an absolute joy to watch going forward, but it's still some sort of weaknesses to work on I think defensively in terms of closing down and blocking crosses particularly um, just kind of concentration perhaps um, but they, they like I say they're, they've not really even had to hit full stride and they've got maximum points from, from their opening games uh, Leicester's probably going to be their, their biggest sort of challenge at that, that those uh, awaiting fixtures um, but yeah I think I think they're as I said last week they look ominously good and, and really as we've had confirmed already, that there's those two clubs, Manchester City and Liverpool, are so far ahead, and there's probably half a dozen clubs fighting for the for the rest of the place places behind them. To talk about Chelsea now, they have picked up just two of a possible twelve points at Stamford Bridge, yet to win at home. Then this season, their home form, Matt, that's got to be a huge concern from Frank Lampard. Yeah, I mean uh, those those stats um, and seeing them, you know halfway down the table they, they, they will be concerning I mean it, it is interesting I was talking to someone involved with Chelsea earlier and, and 
comparing the vibes around, you know, United bringing back an ex player and, you know, there was all that sort of, you know, early giddiness about it. And now it's, you know, becoming sort of, you know, even the sort of some fans are sort of starting to question um, Solskjaer. Lampard's still, certainly from a fan perspective, seems to be very much in a, a sort of, you know, uh, honeymoon period I guess I think people are seeing enough on the pitch that um, they're encouraged by what they're seeing I guess there's comparisons with Sarri so there's you know there's a sort of good goodwill associated with with the the way he's trying to play the transfer ban and obviously that then bringing in the young players you know you saw Mount back in the team yesterday that, that late last late chance which would have you know um, sort of lift, lifted the place, but it's 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 funny how there is a different, you know, vibe. Even though they are say lower in the table, as you say, some of the the home records there is, there seems to be that the weirdest thing that you'd ever say about Chelsea. But um, and it you know, come back in a couple of weeks and we'll see if it's still there. But there seems to be patience, um, <laughs> you know. Which I mean, how many times has that been associated with Chelsea uh, in the Abramovich era? As I say, you know, we're talking about September. Let's see if it's patience in October, November, and onwards. But I think there is there is an intention to show patience. I think the fans feel that. I think the club feel that. I think you know there is that mood around the place. But um, it's fickle, <laughs> fickle game, as we know. So we might have to resume resume this chat uh, in in a while. Well, uh, interesting that Alison Rudd uh, has a take on the game and. and in the game she has written how long can Lampard last on promise alone and she's actually questioning whether Lampard is too adventurous and too trusting in youth but obviously Bill when we knew the transfer embargo was in place everyone suggested Frank Lampard was the right man to come in because he's worked with the the some of the loanees at, at uh, Derby obviously Jody Morris had worked with the youth at Chelsea when he was there previously but now are questions being asked uh, of Lampard? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't be yet um, and, I and I think he's got every reason to play Abraham and, and Mount uh, now based on how they're playing you know it's not uh, like Pedro would definitely do better than Mount if you put him in I, I think they're um, so I don't think it's mu- that much of a gamble um, so I, I, I can't see uh, I, I, I don't think he should be any under any sort of pressure at all in fact I'd You'd be much more optimistic as a Chelsea fan than a Manchester United fan. I think overall they've had a, they've been about similar level this season, um, uh, but uh, with United just really flat. There's a kind of a, an okay, decent-ish level, but they've never been terrible this season, Manchester United. But there's, there's just no flashes of anything. Whereas Chelsea, the last half hour, that was sensational. You know, you think, wow, this, you know, Lampard may have got some sort of idea, something to build on. You know, if they, if they can play like that regularly, then they could really do something this season. And, of course, they got Loftus-Cheek to come back, who's just getting into uh, top-class form because before he got injured late last season. Hudson-Odoi hasn't played so much, but he looks very promising, so... Um, so Pulisic as well. Pulisic, yeah, yeah he's, he's, he hasn't had all that much time on the pitch since he since he arrived in the summer. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be you know I'd be uh, quite happy as a Chelsea fan to be honest. Well, Frank Lampard is only the second Chelsea manager to fail to win his opening four games. They've now conceded thirteen goals in six games, which uh, is the most in six games since nineteen seventy eight. 
despite that, and uh, as Bill has pointed out, that last half hour in particular at Stamford Bridge was a very spirited display from, from Chelsea. And the fans were stayed behind to, to applaud the team uh, for their performance. So can they take some heart from, from what they showed yesterday on Sunday? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, as we've said, it's kind of a, an astonishing situation, really, you know, the turnaround and considering Chelsea's recent history, that... You know, if if anyone else had had that kind of start to a to a season, those bare sort of numbers and statistics and their place in the league, then this is not the this is not the reaction we would be getting. Uh, so in one way, it's like the stars have aligned for Frank Lampard and to getting this the opportunity this time, which you you wouldn't have had otherwise. Let's be honest about it, and um, being afforded a bit a lot more patience than than anyone any of his predecessors. Um, but as as I've said, that it's there is a lot to be sort of encouraged by uh, in terms of performance. And as Lampard sort of pointed out, it's just the f- kind of moments, key moments in games, those fine details that decide games. And often when you've got younger and experienced players that you're relying upon, uh, particularly in defence, then those moments aren't going to go your way. So how long that can continue to happen and, th- and this atmosphere will still be so sort of... Um, Happy and patient. Uh, only time will tell. But I think I think Chelsea have enough talent and quality and and sort of uh, enthusiasm in the ranks to to get enough results to keep them sort of close enough, close enough to the to the Europe, Europe, European spots and keep the pressure off enough that this isn't going to become a serious issue like it potentially could at Manchester United. Erlebe großartigen Sound ganz wie du willst mit Sonos Musik beim Frühstück in der Küche. Deine Lieblingsserie im Wohnzimmer, ein Podcast zum Einschlafen. Oder du nimmst den Soundtrack deines Tages mit nach draußen mit dem neuen Sonos Move, dem Smart Speaker mit Akku. Höre, was du willst, wo du willst und wie du willst mit deinem Sonos Soundsystem. Mehr entdeckst du auf sonos.com. Manchester City began the week in crisis. An embarrassing 3-2 defeat to Premier League new boys Norwich and the title was seemingly over. It's Liverpool's to lose was echoed up and down the country without their first two choice centre-halves. City were all but out of the title race but fast forward seven days and City are back to their magnificent best. Three in Ukraine on Wednesday night in the Champions League before making, well, quite frankly, one hell of a statement. Scoring eight against Watford. Both games without conceding a goal with a makeshift defence bill. Yeah, well, the, it doesn't matter who's in defence if you if the ball never gets that far. And it, and it wasn't. <laughs> it was barely getting that far. A couple of very early chances for Watford. But, um, no, Man- Manchester City were just brilliant. I mean, they just have such such control over games. They just take the lead early so often. I think since the start of last season in the league... Uh, they've they've scored uh, nine times in the first six minutes in home just in home matches. So so it, over and over again that the the match is effectively over. You know when they've needed to they've 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 just killed the game off straight away. So there's so little kind of jeopardy or uncertainty. Um, so they and they did it obviously uh, to an extraordinary extent this time, scoring five times in eighteen in the first eighteen minutes. Um, I think there was a there was a bit of a overreaction um last week against Norwich uh you know uh the city defenders made a couple of really bad mistakes that's unlikely to happen two in one game uh, it won't happen much um Norwich scored th- from three times 
pretty much out of six attacks, you know, did brilliantly to do so, but that's not going to happen much. Manchester City scored twice, yet they went close to scoring about 20 times. That's not going to happen much. So it was all slightly freakish, really, from Manchester City's point of view. And, um, and it just kind of normal service continued, winning easily in uh, Ukraine and now beating, uh, beating Watford. Um, but it just as well, Liverpool are doing so well because in other circumstances you say well the league is 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 absolutely over if Liverpool weren't around you know mm-hmm. clearly would Manchester City would win the title you'd think though that we would learn and, and not write off Manchester <laughs> City but why does it seem as though when they do lose Matt everyone says it's now Liverpool's title to lose um, well, as someone who tipped Liverpool to win the title and got told I was an idiot by a few people, oh. then uh, I'm, I'm obviously delighted. No, I think people I, get offended by you, man. Obviously, <laughs> I think it's um, you know, I th- on the ones clearly, you know, they lose a game. Norwich, as Bill says, you know, some sort of freakish circumstances want a better word, but and but equally, I can understand why we should get sort of excited about it fascinated by it. it's you know we're so used to the domination to see that upset is is a thrilling thing to watch it's um exciting for the league there's nothing i think mm-hmm. yeah one of the great things in sport is watching a great team do brilliantly but another of them is seeing them under pressure have to do brilliantly mm-hmm. and i think yeah that's you know would they have scored eight against watford if presume something somewhere in the team talk involved guardiola saying look you know are you, are you are going to allow people to sort of, you know, say you're, you're rubbish after losing this game, you know, I'm sure there was a, a motivation in that. So I think it's it's all part of the joy of sport, isn't it? That, um, you know, t- football in particular, that it lurches around from one week to another. That's what, that's that's what, you know, and, and I guess in a world where we know Liverpool and Man City basically are going to be first or second or second or in whatever order, it's great that we can, you know, see see results that are unexpected. It's interesting with, with Manchester City and those eight goals. I think Jurgen Klopp has said he, he's going to have to study how on earth they have scored eight goals against a Premier League team. Gregor, it, was this a case of Manchester City simply being too good or actually were Watford not very good? Both. <laughs> Simple as that. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne is just like on a different wavelength to almost any other player in the league, I think. And I'd love to see come the end of the season. I'd love somebody, Bill. Maybe this is one for you to hmm. rack up how many goals are created from that sort of little inside channel, hmm. about thirty yards from goal that he delivers the most like exquisite crosses from. Um, and it seems to be a regular thing. They seem to just kind of rotate. Maybe three players move out to that side of the pitch, rotate around until they create just five yards of space for him to get on the ball, and he puts in a cross that's almost like undefendable. Um, so that's that. I mean. That's a joy to watch, and like I say, it's so hard to deal with. But Watford did give them that space, um, and did sort of not defend the crosses particularly well. But I, I'm I'm not going to criticise anyone for that. I don't think. I think some of those sort of moves and and the way that they construct their attacks are are really impossibly hard to deal with. So Ben Foster said it was the the, the sort of best team he's ever played against, the best performance he'd really ever seen, and he's. He was almost laughing about it, you know. So I don't think you can sort of say too much about Watford there, although I know some people do. Oh, that nicely leads me into what Tony Casarino has had to say about Watford. He has been, uh, well, scathing of Watford. He says losing heavily is one thing, getting hammered 8-0 by a City team missing 
key players is another. Too many players look a void of desire. Uh, Watford, he says, have already changed their manager. Now, Kike Sanchez-Flores has the task of picking up a group of 11 players that will be on the floor. I think he basically goes on to allude to the fact that he thinks Watford will be relegated. I'm not sure if he's basing this all on just this one game, but that's not obviously something Watford fans will be wanting to, to hear. But when you look at the game at the weekend and of how Watford have started this season, are they as doomed as Tony is suggesting now? I wouldn't say so, no. I, the fact that Manchester City are so good, it, it, you can almost literally laugh it off, as uh, Gregor was saying. <laughs> um so, so we'll see. I mean, we know they played very well against Arsenal the previous uh, week. Um, I think they've, on paper, they've got a team that you wouldn't expect to go down. Um, and they've got their best forward, Troy Deeney. I think he's really underrated. He'll be back at some point. He's injured at the moment. Um, so that'll be a big boost. Um, so, no, I wouldn't be too worried I mean they do, clearly they need to start winning soon they still haven't uh, won but uh, I think that there's, there's no obvious um, uh, team like you know last season you thought Cardiff and Huddersfield it doesn't look good for them you know from very early on but there's, there, it's, it's hard to pick out a team where you think oh they're, they're really going to struggle so far this season mm. and if you're looking at Manchester City losing at Norwich is a freakish result. We should look at this one perhaps as a freakish result, Matt. Well, yeah, as, as, I mean, there are, to score those early goals it's at such speed, um, yeah, I mean, everything just clicked for them. And so, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd, I agree with Bill. I mean, I think, you know, Watford have largely got the um, same group of players that, that have done well over the last couple of years um, with Deeney to come back. And I don't see. You know, um, they've got a manager who obviously they've had before. They know him. He knows a lot of the players. I think yeah, there's there's a, there's enough reasons to think that they should be able to um, sort themselves out. West Ham, West Ham got walked five 0 by Manchester City on the opening mm. day, and now we're just been talking about them as potential candidates for the top six. So I think yeah, can maybe jump to a conclusion sometimes. Maybe Pep's right. <laughs> <laughs> The Rugby World Cup 2019 is underway in Japan. The Times will be at every game and The Ruck, our award-winning rugby podcast, will be covering the tournament in its unique style. Presented by World Cup winner and former England captain Lawrence Delalio, we'll be bringing you the latest news from Owen Slott, Stephen Jones and the rest of our writers on the ground as they experience the sights and sounds of the greatest tournament in world rugby. The podcast is available now. Just search for The Ruck on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Acast and don't forget to subscribe to never miss an episode. Another weekend then in the Premier League has been and gone and VAR once again is a talking point. Quite a few incidents this weekend and quite a big one in the game between Tottenham and Leicester. Sergio Aurier saw his goal against Brendan Rodgers' side chalked off due to Song Heung-min being adjudged offside on review. Now, the technology tells us that Song was 1.6 centimetres offside. Are we happy then that offsides of 1.6 centimetres are being called? Gregor, what do you think? I mean, a big part of me says, says no, just because... <laughs> To the human eye, it looked completely level, and that was we're so used to that's that should be onside. But when 
when you try and look for search for solutions to this, we've you know we've discussed already on this podcast that the technology doesn't really exist to make it any more definitive. Uh, people have talked about should they be should these decisions be clear and obvious, but we can't agree on what's clear and obvious for other decisions. So why should that be any different? Mm. Um, I think really we just have to get get used to this. Um, I mean, there's so many, you know, people throw forward all sorts of solutions about what part of the body it should be and things like that. I think we're just getting, going down a wormhole, really. Um, I think we need to make the the most of the technology we have available to ourselves just now um, and work hard to try and make it better. I mean, obviously, Matt, you're, you've been a big fan mm-hmm. of VAI. You've been wanting it introduced for, for quite a while. And obviously, with something with an offside and onside, I mean, it's just it's you're either onside or you're not, basically. Well, exactly. I mean, people say, "Oh, well, should we have a um, you know ten centimeter rule or something?" But then we're going to be arguing about whether it was ten or ten point five or nine point five. <laughs> so you know, you're just shifting the problem. I do, I do see. You know, there had been a shift towards giving. You know, when there was a benefit of the doubt th- to to a linesman, there had been a sense that the, uh, the attacking team. Um, Attacker had um, the sort of benefit of, of of that doubt, and I can, you know, Gregor said I mean, maybe it's just sh- sort of shifting the argument, but I can see that maybe you can redefine the rule so that you know if there's a part of the um, striker that is still onside, effectively, then that's you know you change you change the rule in that sense. So there is effectively a way of an attacker. Um, of just shifting the balance back in favour of of an attacker. So I, you don't know if you get measured as well, though, in the same. No, but you still get measured. So you're still going to have 1.6 mm-hmm. centimetre decision. But all I'm saying is that that allows then the attacker to be, you know, on on pushing to his luck to to keep the benefit. Exactly. So I, I, you know, I think there is a case for that. You know, maybe we can look at how many goals are being scored, compare it to how many goals are being disallowed, compared to to what we've seen before for offsides. We need those sort of statistics, because again, people are going on emotion. I mean, it's you know, the goals disallowed, then Leicester, you know, score and win the game, as if VAR is responsible for that as well. There's these highly emotive arguments coming in where it's like, oh, that you know, Spurs would have won with this. That's changed it. Well, you know, a goal's been disallowed because a man was offside. That's been a matter of you know. Fact and judge uh, fact in the decision. That doesn't mean to say that whatever happens thereafter is therefore VAR's responsibility. Um, and also, you know, I've said it before. Everyone is judging this on on what still feels to me, you know, in the great scheme of things, you know, very limited period of of use. You know, this is a system that we might be fine tuning for the next ten years, but mm-hmm. to make it better and to make it more palatable and to make it more acceptable for how we want the game to be and Let's just have a discussion about about that, not sort of throwing our arms in horror about it. The phases are quite interesting, though. You know, the, the incident at uh, Stamford Bridge where Mason Mount was offside mm-hmm. and then the game continued and trying to sort of discern what at what point a new phase of play begins. Is it, was it when the goalkeeper makes a save or is it when the defence reset themselves? You know, that is a, that is something I think that you probably could tighten up don't ask me how, but I think I think it's different. It's not quite. It's not. It's not sort of measuring something by the millimeter. It's. I think you could probably decide upon a ruling that would sort of determine what a new phase of play is. And That's that right. Because uh, there was Norwich got a goal against Chelsea, I think, this season where 
Norwich player clearly committed a foul on a Chelsea player near the touchline, near the halfway line, and Norwich scored, I don't know, 15 seconds later, let's say. And then it was decided that was too too far before the the goal was scored to to matter, mm. so it wouldn't it wasn't considered was it was this actually a foul or not? So again, we, you know, where where does the phase of play, relevant phase of play, start and finish? Well, it didn't it, matter to to uh, to Chelsea or to Liverpool. Sorry, to mm. their defenders. You know, it was so marginally standing on the touchline. If he'd been standing half a half a yard deeper. It wouldn't have affected the way that the game unfurled afterwards. So that's something I think could be probably looked at. There was also that penalty incident in the game between Arsenal and Aston Villa where Socrates may or may not, depending on how you looked at it, uh, handballed. Um, how was that hmm. not given? Because most people think that was a, a nailed-on yeah. penalty. It's interesting that no decis- penalty decisions have been overturned, whether if it's the ref giving a penalty and overturning it or the ref not giving a penalty and that being overturned to a penalty. 60 games so far, nothing has happened. No overturn in all that time. In other, and, and you could argue for 20, 25, you could probably say a majority of referees would have changed their minds. Maybe 20, you know, in 20 incidents or 25, so, that, so the, as people say the bar is so high now as to be almost... Pointless, you know. It's not really going to change. The, the, the definition, I, I, I've never heard of it. What the definition of is of clear and obvious? Is it ten referees out of ten would say it's a penalty? Was <laughs> it nine out of ten? <laughs> eight out of ten? Yeah. Uh, this is quite a never. It's so hard more, to know what clear and obvious. I know, I know <laughs> that's, that, that's difficult as it is, of course. To, that's to, because, to, yeah, as you say, I, I was surprised that that asked the, the that wasn't given, but um, especially the way that. You know, I know we are interpreting the law slightly different from <laughs> just to complicate it further. But I think, yeah. I mean, ultimately, we also have to remind ourselves, I think, again, I'm sure I said this before, that this, you know, we would normally be picking up the game and there would be, you know, ex-manager says, why referee is useless because mm. he missed this. Or, you know, there would, yeah. there would, there would be three stories like that. I and totally agree. I, I absolutely, I'm totally with Matt. I think VAR, I think it's been... I'd definitely stick with it, even if it's been as it is. I mean, no doubt it'll improve as the season goes on, as the seasons continue. So I would certainly stick with it. The, the, the only real problem is, is it from day one, on the, the, when the idea was first mooted, is um, what happens when a goal is scored and there's not you know, muted celebrations because you're waiting for confirmation. And, uh, and, and it could have... I know people felt... Uh, in, in, they probably felt this was an important uh, issue this weekend because four goals were overturned unusually in one weekend. But uh, overall, the 186 times a ball's gone in the net this season, a goal has been awarded, and 10 times it's been overruled by VAR. So it's only one in 19, so 5%. So, so when a goal goes in, I think you, you can be that you can be confident enough. You're 95% sure it is a goal. You know, so I think you can be, you can feel confident in celebrating, because <laughs> it's such a small chance. You know, five percent, especially as often, you know when there is some doubt. Most of the time, there there won't be any doubt. A player just goes through no issue of a foul or offside. So, so lots of the time, you can be clear anyway. And that's why we have Bill go. for those sort of stats. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you know, like, you know, football's emotional. There's it, it, going to be emotion in this argument as well. But it's great to have someone like Bill who can actually put that. 
in a, a e yeah. yeah easy to handle you know easy for me it's no mathematician to handle st <laughs> statistic because i think we need more of that in this argument you know yes there's emotion and we need that as part of the game but ultimately you know we also um say we've the world has moaned enough about refereeing and we're just trying to Give them, give them a helping hand. It doesn't seem uh, as, a, as I always think. If if we can't make this work, then um, we're pretty bloody useless. Maybe we should get like a jaunty jingle for whenever we're discussing VAR. Still late in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever happened, VAR is here to stay. I think we just have to get used to it. Well, that is it for now. Many thanks to Matt Dickinson and Bill Edgar for joining us. Remember, you can subscribe to the Times and the Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search the Times subscription for more information and we'll be back on Thursday. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.